welcome to Theologizing Life with Anthony Cottrell and Matt Tracy. That's right. The one and only. The one and only. <laughs> I wasn't going to do that, but I did. Well, uh, we are here, Matt and Anthony, to talk about theology, to theologize, to fumble through processing our thoughts about things. And Matt, what are we going to fumble through talking about today? We are talking about the end times, the theology of the end times. Or so. the the more scholarly label? Eschatology. Eschatology. eschaton. eschaton. That's, that's kind of the, yeah, the, the academic term, the eschaton, eschatology, which means the end of days. Uh, so yeah, it's going to be uh, kind of a fun, but challenging and interesting discussion, I think, today. Yeah. Why on earth would we be talking about this, man? Well, it's, it's a time of fear. I think in our world today, and it's definitely uh, stirring up some some end times thoughts in a lot of Christians. Yeah. And right, yeah, and so it's fair; like it's it's not unwarranted, uh, right? You know, when when the world seems to be like the conflicts and violence in the world seem to be rising, it's it's not you know unreasonable to start looking to what the Bible says about you know. Jesus's return and, and what things are going to look like. Um, but I also think it's, it's important to do that responsibly. Yeah. So that's uh, our purpose today, I think is just kind of um, give some guidance on, on how to maybe think about these things and maybe pump the brakes on some of the more radical ideas. <laughs> yeah. Um, so just for a little bit of context, <clears throat> um, just in case anyone were to stumble upon this episode in years and years from now, um, earlier this week, it was this week, right? Or no, I guess technically last week, uh, Russia invaded Ukraine and there is um, an ongoing uh, conflict as we speak. And um, yeah, there, there's geopolitical unrest. I want to say a couple things, just personal self-disclosure. Um, I am not an expert in geopolitical uh, issues. I do not exhaustively read news or keep up with stuff or even understand or pretend to understand some of the dynamics at play. Um, and then I'm also not an expert in eschatology. For a good part of my ministry, I sort of avoided it uh, because I knew more uh, of what I didn't believe than what I did. And recently I've started reading up on it and there's still a book that I um, have yet to read that it's sort of the view I align with, but this book goes through the exegetical defense of the position I align with. And um, for, for those exegetical is just the sort of um, the biblical, uh, an in-depth study of the biblical defense of this position. And so I, I've yet to read that, but I've read a couple others. I'll recommend all of these or, or mention all of these. Um, at some point, because I'll probably reference them, but I just wanted to let people know I'm not I'm not an expert on on these things and don't presume to be. But I think there are some some principles or some potential just unhelp I would say unhelpful tendencies that Christians almost like revert to uh, when these things happen in our world. It's like reactionary, right. and I just don't. I, I feel like it's more emotional, more reactionary than theological. Um, and, and helpful. So yeah, we'll talk about some of that. Yeah. So just an example, like I just did a quick Google 
Google search and there's a, a televangelist named Pat Robertson, Robertson, Pat Robertson. Uh, he retired, but I guess he came out of retirement and he's starting to kind of uh, disseminate some, some end times, you know, hysteria among his listeners because of Putin's uh, invasion of Ukraine. He thinks it's some kind of, uh, it's setting a precedent for an invasion of Israel, which <laughs> we could go on about that. Um, but yeah, it's just so Matt. I want to I want to speak to that for a little bit and and just lay my cards on the table if that's okay. Yeah. So um, I I think Pat Robertson. I have family members who listen to him, and and I think he has a genuine heart. But but he and others that I I, I won't won't name. But there are some people that jump on this like prophetic. Um, and, and begin to speak with authority about what certain biblical prophecies mean and certain um, current events. And I just get really unsettled and mm-hmm. I just want to explain why. So um, long before I was born, there was a book that came out, The Late Great Planet Earth by a guy named Hal Lindsey. Um, and all of this, I, I shared actually some of what I'm going to reference. I shared in a blog at pastoranthonyblog.wordpress.com. But um, Lindsay's views became like sort of widely circulated. Uh, one blogger quotes about this, said, among the things found in his book was the idea that Revelation was speaking about such things as the Soviet Union, this was back in the 70s, nuclear attacks between the USSR and the US. And when Mikhail Gorbachev became president of Russia, individuals who followed the planet Earth type of interpretation stated that Gorbachev was the Antichrist, citing the references in Revelation to the mark of the beast, 666, as proof of this. Gorbachev, if you recall, had a rather large birthmark on his forehead. While the birthmark in no way resembles the number 666, if one traces them in a certain manner, one can arrive at this conclusion. So many people were saying that the end of the world was near because Gorbachev, complete with the mark of the beast on his forehead, had emerged as a world leader. Um, <clears throat> and then another blogger about Hal Lindsey said every three years, Hal Lindsey write, wrote a new book. He, like he would predict the end times, um, but then when the year that he predicted would come about, he'd have to like republish it. Mm-hmm. Um, and each sub- subsequent book explains how he wasn't wrong in the previous book and the world will really end in five years. He's mm-hmm. followed this pattern for three decades and is now acknowledged as the foremost authority of biblical prophecy in the world today. Okay. You fast forward to been 19- wrong for three decades. <laughs> right. Exactly. So fast forward to 1999 and Y2K bug was causing mass hysteria. I was about to go into middle school. The world was going to shut down. Planes were going to fall out of the air. The computers were going to like not be able to turn over and banks would collapse and there would just be, um, you know, complete anarchy and it was the end of the world. Um, that was very unsettling um, for me as a middle schooler and kind of scary to try to wrap your mind around coming out of sixth grade. And it didn't happen. Um, it was not the end of the world. We are 22 years later uh, from the YTK bug, and actually uh, nothing nothing happened. And again, what's interesting, um, if you look at some of the blogs or some of the things which were very different on the internet, but you can find things that were written during that time, um, and they sound very similar to today. Uh, and there were people who were, going to Jerusalem, to Mount Zion, uh, entering into Israel, it was actually, I was reading about, it's actually sort of an issue. They had to deal with an influx of, of people coming before 
the year 2000 because they were waiting for Christ's return on Mount Zion. And then they just look foolish. Um, and I've now lived through a couple of those, like 2012. Yeah. Wasn't that like a radio host or something? Like, well, you found the end of the Mayan calendar. Yeah. Well, I don't know. I don't know all the details, but yeah, something related to Mayan calendar. I just did. So here's the thing. I've stopped paying attention to stuff is the point. Like I've just, anyone who claims to have prophetic revelation on and clarity on the end times, my posture is I run away from it as fast as I can. Interesting. With intense skepticism. (laughs) Yes. Yeah. Yeah. So that's a little bit, maybe some of my postures or views on this are a little bit reactionary, but I think they are, um, I think there's good reason. And I'll, I'll, we'll probably get into to why like, I can explain more mm-hmm. about that. But that's just a little brief, brief part of my story. Matt, you're a little bit younger than me. Uh, yeah, I was. Um, what about you? I was in kindergarten in 1999. So um, I've kind of run into the same, the same thing. Obviously, I'm not old enough to remember Y2K. I am old enough to remember, uh, in some ways, September 11th. A lot of this stuff was um, kind of stirred up. I, it, it seems like whenever there's, and for good reason, like, again, whenever there's some kind of global catastrophe, whenever, unfortunately, whenever it seems like Western culture isn't as stable as we might want it to be, <laughs> um, then we we tend to jump to this end times rhetoric that is it's kind of baseless when when you really get down to it um and i think that goes back to something that you and i are pretty passionate about encouraging people to consider when you're talking about your theology how your immediate context impacts it and how your view of god might be changed or or influenced by your current situation because the end of the world what might look like the end of the world to you uh, looks like every day for another person you know for example someone who uh, is living in in relative peace uh, in in a western country that gets invaded uh, that that's that's everyday experience for someone who who lives in the middle east I, i just think that's really important thing to consider is 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 how much our western culture how much our sense of security financially uh, militarily like as american citizens as part of a, a very powerful uh, union of countries that have you know defensive alliances with one another it's um and whenever that's whenever the boat is rocked a little bit we tend to jump to these end times theories yeah um our our context and um, a broader view of history needs to be taken into consideration when we are going to claim, um, especially with authority, uh, to, to know how the world is going to end and how God's going to wrap up history and the timing of it. I think we should be very careful if we're going to do that to acknowledge some things. So, f- for example, um, in in Matthew 23 and 24, Jesus, that's, that's where that wars and rumors of wars and like earthquakes and famine and all that stuff Jesus talks about. And these are signs. Um, but if you look at Matthew 23, he talks about the temple being destroyed and his disciples ask, when will these things happen? And in, in, in the process of this discourse and in the 
original language, there's not a breakup of the chapter between Matthew 23 and 24. And so, first of all, I am from the posture that Jesus is talking about the fall of Jerusalem that happened in AD 70. Here's why too. Jesus multiple times says, this generation will not pass away. Well, the fall of Jerusalem, if Jesus is around AD 30, happened in AD 70, uh, that was within that generation. Also the wars and rumors of wars, uh, there was a lot of um, political unrest that uh, disrupted the Pax Romana, the peace of Rome. So there's, there's this sense of peace, although it was um, maintained through Rome's sometimes brutal tactics, but there was this peace, but then there was all this disruption in wars and civil unrest and things um, and emperors. Uh, I don't, I'm not a historian, but there were some things that transpired. There's also a famine. Um, this is actually mentioned in scripture and acts. Uh, there was a famine. And because of this, the churches collected um, and sent money and things to the church at Jerusalem around the empire. There's a famine that impacted, I think it's in acts 11. Um, and then earthquake, uh, there were a couple earthquakes, and one of the notable ones that happened after this was uh, uh, Pompeii, <laughs> um, is one we know in history. So there are these things that Jesus was talking about that specifically happen within a generation. But here's the thing. They've also continued to happen all throughout history. There have been wars. There have been periods of history that are incredibly barbaric. And, like, we get the term rape and pillage for a reason. There was just wars all, all the time. And then there were also other times where there were plagues that affected maybe not the entire globe at the time, because, you know, airplanes make transmission <laughs> across yeah. continents, uh, but uh, across the, the known, known world, the, you know, the, bubonic the known world. Plague. Yeah. Um, and the bubonic plague killed 50 million a, people, yeah. a significant portion of the world, the known world's population. Mm -hmm. um, and then even World War One and World War Two with Hitler, I if I subscribe to some of these methods of interpretation that people subscribe to and was alive during World War II, um, you could not have convinced me that Hitler wasn't the Antichrist and it wasn't the end of the world. Yeah. Um, if I subscribe to that, but I've, but yeah, but I, when you zoom out and see the span of global history, you realize um, these things uh, are, are not that, unusual and it could but i want to be clear i want to be clear about this jesus could come back at any time jesus i believe in jesus second coming and he could come back today i'm not saying that i'm saying let's not get our panties in a knot every time <laughs> something like <laughs> maybe i should have said that very very eloquently said good job <laughs> um, uh, it's it's early and i haven't had all my coffee so maybe we're going a little more cantankerous um but yeah let's not let's not jump immediately to the fear-mongering end of the world uh prophetic claims every time you know uh murder hornets are yeah. talked about in the news <laughs> jesus in, in matthew 24 I'll, I'll just read verses one through eight because i think uh this is important to have in your mind again this is all kind of seated in the um the historical context where, where the temple is still uh, standing, but Jesus predicted that it's going to to come down, you know, within a generation. Um, as Jesus was leaving the temple grounds, his disciples pointed out to him the various temple buildings. But he responded, "Do you see all these buildings? I tell you the truth, they will be completely demolished. Not one, not one stone will be left on top of another." Later, Jesus sat on the Mount of Olives. His disciples came to him privately, 
and said, tell us when will all this happen? What sign will signal your return and the end of the world? Jesus told them, do not let anyone mislead you for many will come in my name claiming I am the Messiah. They will, they will deceive many. You will hear wars and threats of wars, but don't panic. Yes, these things must take place, but the end won't follow immediately. Nation will go to war against nation, kingdom against kingdom. There will be famines and earthquakes in many parts of the world, but this is the only the first of the birth pains with more to come. So that's kind of what you were saying. Um, these things are going to happen. Um, the, the birth pains are going to begin kind of as uh, creation strains and, and groans for a savior, uh, so to speak. Um, but the, the immediate disasters that Jesus was talking about are only the beginning of what is going to be uh, years upon years of that until he returns and makes all things new. And I want to, I want to add just a little bit of context to that too. So imagine Jesus is speaking to these Jewish disciples who still at this point of, of, in time at this conversation, believe he is the Messiah who's going to lead a revolution um, and liberate Israel from Rome. And whose entire understanding of relating to God is completely wrapped up in the sacrificial system in the temple. So imagine if you're a Jew and you believe Jesus is the Messiah, but then he's killed by Rome. Okay. Then he raises from the dead. Well, that's a turn of events. So this changes everything, but then he ascends to heaven. And then the temple and the sacrificial system, as you know, it is completely destroyed and done away with. First of all, I want to suggest or propose that in your mind, um, that would be the end of an age. Uh, the, the destruction of the temple and the, the fact that um, since then, as far as I am aware, uh, Jews have not practiced uh, sacrificing animals on the altar in the temple. It's not the, the entire system that they sort of oriented their faith around was done away with in 8070. That's, that's the end of an age in the, the way the biblical, I think, understanding of the end of an age would mean. Secondly, if you are a Jesus follower who is a Jew, but maybe didn't see him raised from the dead, you're a couple generations later and you start seeing that happen. And then you're being persecuted by Rome. Um, it'd be easy, I think, to start losing faith and say, okay, I thought the kingdom of God came through Jesus. I thought God was doing a new thing. I thought there's resurrection hope. Um, but this stuff is happening. Um, I think part of, and this is where we can segue into Revelation. I think part of Jesus' intent was say, don't, don't, he literally said, don't panic. Um, don't lose faith. Uh, these things will happen. It does not undo what I'm going to do in and through the resurrection. Yeah. It, it, it absolutely does not undo it. And so when we get to, I'm going to segue into Revelation. Is that cool? Yeah. Uh, when we get to Revelation, let's talk about what Revelation is, um, because it was also meant to encourage believers not to lose faith in the face of persecution yeah. um, to not look at what was going on around them and to them, and then begin doubting the hope of resurrection. So um, I'll just start. Uh, what, what, what is the context of revelation, Matt? What, what kind of genre or what, what is what we call the book? What is it? Um, it's a, it's, it's known as apocalyptic literature. And I think just that word apocalyptic apocalypse it's kind of scary to people. Um, it comes from directly from Greek, the Greek word apocalypsos, which really only just means to reveal. That's why it's called revelation, um, mm -hmm. because God is revealing unseen things uh, to his uh, prophet, John. And so 
Revelation is is first and foremost uh, a peek behind the curtain, a, a glimpse at what is happening in the spiritual realm. And it was given to John uh, to write down. These visions were written uh, in the form of a letter. Um, so it has actually the, the traditional like greeting of a, a New Testament letter. It's addressed to specific churches uh, in the um, the ancient world. And it's meant to address a very real situation that was going on in their day. Um, it was written to a people who were finding themselves more and more uh, at war, so to speak, with the ways of the world around them. They were finding that their, their faith was increasingly incompatible with their culture and the authorities that were placed over them. Um, and it was very, very hard to survive as a follower of Jesus in that day. And so God gave this prophecy to these churches, to, to John, to, to send to these churches as an encouragement, as a reminder. Um, I am still God. I am still on the throne. Uh, hold tight to the faith because Jesus is coming soon. A little, um, and again, I'm not a historian, but a little context too of, of some of what was going on that was incompatible with their faith. Like um, there's debate on whether this was written when Nero was emperor or Domitian, but either way, um, I think most scholars lean towards Domitian, um, but either way, both of them are known for intensely persecuting Christians. And Nero is sort of like more well-known, but He's Domitian- the paradigmatic like Christian persecutor, mm -hmm. you know? Yeah, but Domitian's uh, persecution was a little more intense. And another thing, um, there was the imperial cult, uh, which is imperial. It was emperor worship. Um, mm -hmm. Caesars were, were considered deities. And some Caesars took that a little more seriously than others. Um, Domitian took it very seriously and essentially demanded to be worshipped as a god. And one of the things... Yeah, he... he he demanded that he be addressed as our Lord and our God. Um, even right. Caesar Augustus would call himself son of God. That was one of the titles that he referred to himself as. Right. And so when you notice about the history and I was just, even if you disagree with a lot of what we say here today, I just, I think it's important understanding the historical backdrop of, of where in, in the, the situation that John is writing to um, yeah. in uh, Roman, uh, not just Roman citizens, but people under, because um, some people were not citizens, like, like uh, people who were under the authority of the Roman Empire were supposed to go once a year and present themselves, I guess, before like a magistrate or something and declare Caesar as Lord um, and burn incense to the emperor. And if they, were, if they did this, they were given a certificate, a libelist, saying they did it. They, they declared Caesar as Lord. Um, if they didn't, there was potential consequences and I haven't studied, but some of, some of what I heard is if without that certificate, that libelous, there were certain marketplaces that they potentially couldn't buy and sell. So this idea, um, I think that puts the mark of the beast in context because it talks about not being able to buy and sell. I think there is this very real um, contrast between saying Jesus is Lord and Caesar is Lord. Yeah. And for the Jesus follower, you could not do that. Um, but if you didn't, uh, there were consequences. And so that's a little bit of the, I think a little bit of the backdrop yeah. um, behind where, what John is writing, but yeah, it was, uh, anyway, so um, it was essentially state mandated religion. Yeah. Um, 
it, it wasn't a religion in that they were actually um they were actually worshiping them but it was religion in that they were acknowledging their superiority their their deity mm -hmm. uh, as yeah emperor. yeah so like they didn't necessarily go you know once a week on on you know the sun god day or something they didn't like go and worship in places of worship the emperor yeah. but they had to um they had to commit you know their undying allegiance yeah. it was and the imperial cult is a is a good term it was a cult um a state mandated uh a cult and um and so christians obviously if, if you're a christian and you and you're your life is oriented around this truth that Jesus is Lord, uh, Jesus is King, Jesus has supreme authority over all creation, and you're being, you know, mandated to acknowledge that no, this human uh, ruler, this figure, Caesar, uh, is Lord. You're you're faced with a choice, um, a really hard choice, a really difficult choice to, you know, refuse to bow to the emperor and and face consequences and potentially very very severe consequences or you could conform uh to rome you know avoid that pain and suffering but bow to a false idol uh and and essentially forsake your faith um and and, and it's not just an us versus them issue i don't think i think also part of john's message is because there is a place in revelation where it, it tell um Revelation 12, 19, do not take revenge, my dear friends, but leave room for God's wrath for it is written. It's mine to avenge, I will repay. Mm -hmm. So there's this, um, you know, and they will overcome the enemy by the blood of the lamb and the word of their testimony. There was this sense that like, also don't, don't align yourself with the way of Satan and also don't fight back um, in with the ways of the world. Don't, yeah. don't take revenge. Um, and there was meant to be this encouragement that, God will set things right. He will hold accountable um, the people responsible for committing atrocities and um, just these grievous evils. And so there's meant to be this encouragement that like, essentially you will be vindicated. Mm -hmm. um, can, you know, keep the faith, you know, yeah. hold the line, run, run the race, continue following Jesus in the way of the cross. Right. God will deal rightly and justly with them. So I think that what we're trying to get at is that the the message of Revelation has, has often been used to instill fear, but it was originally intended to be an encouragement uh, to believers who are facing very difficult circumstances. Um, and I think the kind of the thrust of the the message is Jesus overcame through enduring suffering. And so will you. And so in a way, this the suffering that this church, these churches are are enduring is uh, sanctifying. It's it's making them more in the image of Jesus. And uh, John is encouraging them, you know, the, the battle has already been won. Uh, you're in Christ and your security is is full. You have uh, you have achieved victory in Christ and. I think we, when, when Christians even like uh, think about this, the, you know, the book of revelation, it's, it's, it's always like, oh man, God is coming to destroy the world. God is coming to yeah. just wreck everything. And uh, the world's just going to go up in flames. Um, yep. 
that yeah. that there is some of that imagery of of destruction and judgment, but that is all. I think an important thing to realize is that all of that judgment is one on Satan and evil, and also for the purpose of bringing people back to Himself. Um, yeah. The even in the Old Testament, the exile and God's judgment on Israel and the Old Testament prophets, there was there was it was it was ne- like the intention is never just for God just to like, man, I've been holding my anger in and I'm just going to yeah. just unleash and wail on these people. It, it, God's heart is always for restoration. Right now in the end, there will still be people I think who resolutely um, are determined to um, uh, defy God mm-hmm. uh, and, and will sort of solidify, I guess their, their destiny in that way. Yeah. But God, heart his desire i believe is for people's restoration right you know? and the 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 punishment the judgment uh and revelation it, it bears pretty close similarity to the the plagues that god unleashed on egypt um and for all of the uh destruction that pharaoh was witnessing his heart was hardened against god uh, whereas he could have acquiesced and the judgment could have stopped and I think it kind of is ramped up in, in the book of Revelation where uh, sinners have kind of a, a hardened heart like Pharaoh where the destruction around them um, is intended to uh, bring them to their knees before God, to acquiesce to his will, uh, to be saved, but their hearts are so hardened that they refuse. Yeah, as you're saying, I, I want to, I guess, sort of respond with like sharing kind of what I took from um some, some key things. Revelation is a letter written to Christians that were persecuted during that time um, with the purpose of encouraging them, uh, reminding them of their victory in Christ, and even um, reminding them that this, what they're going through, God is able, I don't think God is doing to them, but God is able to, to use anything to form us and sanctify us. And so one of the important things I, I want to suggest or encourage is um, uh I'll quote these guys that wrote um, a book, Reading the Bible for All It's Worth, Thea and Stewart, or their last name. So the primary meaning of the revelation is what John intended it to mean, which in turn must also have, had, have, must also have been something his readers could have understood it to mean. Um, and another important thing, one may not assume, as some schools of interpretation do, that John's readers had to have read Matthew or First and Second Thessalonians and that they already knew from their reading of those texts, certain keys to understand what John had written. So some people to interpret revelation, they, they draw from Jesus words about that. You read, they draw from first, second Thessalonians. Um, the scriptures as we have them were not compiled uh, or, you know, paper and printing all that stuff was not easily accessible. So whatever revelation means, it couldn't means something that would have required John's readers to essentially have access to all those texts and then also believe, oh, this is for 2000 years later events to come. Like it was meant to encourage them. So it had to mean something to them um, in their day. Yeah. There's no difference. Um, Right. Um, Now that doesn't mean that that is not to say, I believe scripture is living and active. It does not that is not to say that there's not relevance to today um, and, and that the symbols 
So I want to move into talking about some of this. There's a lot of symbolism in the book that tend to, tends to make it complicated to understand. Um, I think part of the symbolism is because John was writing during a time of intense persecution um, and he is likely exiled on the island of Patmos. And so um, should this letter get in the hands of the wrong people, uh, the symbolism, it, in a sense, it was maybe kind of coded, but coded in a way that they could have understood, like mm -hmm. in a way that had meaning to them. Um, but I want to read, there's this book, More Than Conquerors, an interpretation of the book of Revelation by William Hendrickson. That's really good. And I just want to say, I don't agree with everything he says or all of his theological positions. This isn't like, oh, this is the person I agree with. Like, But I think he approaches Revelation with responsible scholarship and theology. And he says, if these symbols merely indicate and predict isolated future events, it may satisfy some people's curiosity, but it can hardly be said that people in general are edified. On the other hand, if we believe that the book reveals the principles of divine moral government that are constantly operating so that whatever age we happen to live in, we can see God's hand in history and his mighty arm protecting us and giving us the victory through our Lord Jesus Christ, then and only then are we edified and comforted. So his point is, whatever the revelation means, it was meant to edify the church, it was meant mm -hmm. to encourage them, it was meant to encourage John's original audience. But so the symbols can't only apply to current events, but he also makes the case that uh, what is being revealed are things that uh, are, are identified are sort of the ways of history that tend to repeat themselves. We say that even, and to see God at work in each age, yeah. um, not necessarily to predict when the end of the age is. Yeah. Yeah. And then I think that's, it goes back to the title of the book, Revelation. Um, right. It's a, it's a reminder that, you know, in times of suffering, God is not standing idly by just watching it all unfold uh, with his arms crossed. God is at war with his people uh, in the spiritual realm. And man, if that's not an encouragement uh, to a persecuted Christian, I don't, I don't know what is. Um, yeah. And so like and I think as you as you said that I think too there's a lot of imagery of spiritual beings evil spiritual beings I think you know Paul says we don't fight against flesh and blood but against spiritual forces mm -hmm. I think part of it too encourages that God is is working on our behalf but also there's a very for me anyways following Jesus means I need to be vigilant against guarding against hate and resentment and bitterness and unforgiveness um and when I recognize that um, there are spiritual forces of evil um, that have enslaved another person. Um, it actually can sort of evoke compassion and a desire for their wholeness. Mm -hmm. uh, and my, my anger or frustration can be directed at these spiritual forces of evil instead of at people whom God loves and wants to redeem. Mm -hmm. um, and so the book is full of this imagery of these evil spiritual beings at work. But Yeah. yeah. And a lot of those have been taken to uh, be, you know, representative of like modern day warfare technology. Uh, you know, John trying to describe like an Apache helicopter or something like that. Yeah. 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 Those are depictions of what's going on in the spiritual realm. The, the war that is taking place uh, between God and evil. Yeah. Uh, God is fighting alongside his people. Um, I mean, he has from the very beginning the, the name Israel 
means God fights. <laughs> like that's mm-hmm. who God is. He he struggles alongside his people. He's not um, he's not aloof. He is not like separate from our suffering. He is in it with us. Yeah. Yeah. And I think Jesus is the 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 biggest uh, example of that of yeah. a, a suffering Lord. Yeah. So um, we're, we're not going to be able to like go through all of the symbols. And I don't think, frankly, I'm, I wouldn't be ready to, even if we had the time to, mm-hmm. I I'm still a student of understanding this, but one of the symbols in the book that is widely misunderstood and sort of instills fear, even in believers is the mark of the beast and, and the language around that. And it instills fear in believers because there's pretty strong language about the judgment for those who take on the mark of the beast. And then there's been all this like ranging from just irresponsible theology to just straight up bonkers conspiracy, Um, you know, credit cards, barcodes, the vaccine, like monster energy drink, like uh, cause you know, the symbol on the monster energy drinks, I don't know if you've heard that, but, and, and, uh, on the can, it says on the can, it says unleash the beast in their description of the energy drink. And, uh, some people say the symbol, the the monster symbol looks like a Hebrew, um, uh, letter, uh, that I don't know what their argument, if it like represents the number six, 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 or, uh, I don't know. It's yeah. Conspiracy stuff. And so what happens though, is literally last year during pandemic, um, one of one of my pastors got an email from someone, a young person who was genuinely afraid. Like, if I like, if I get the vaccine, is that the mark of the beast? And am I like going to go to hell? Like, um, and I just want to scream, like, oh my goodness! <laughs> like, um, the, these these symbols instill fear, and then believers are, are get fearful that they're going to unknowingly align themselves with the the beast. And yeah. I just want to say. That is not the message in that. What Matt, Matt, I want to talk about what that could mean. You have some, um, some perspective on that. And so we will share some potential understandings of, of what that symbol might mean. Mm-hmm. Um, uh, but some of the other symbolism, I just, I want to put people at ease. You, you are not going to unknowingly inject something in yourself and align yourself with the beast. And then God, uh, you know, judge you. God's not that capricious or insecure or uh, vindictive. That's yeah. not who God is. Right. Um, God's hold over your life. If you're in Christ, your salvation uh, is so secure, uh, eternally secure. And th- I don't think if you are, you know, guided by the spirit, wise in your discernment, I don't think it's possible for you to be unknowingly unwittingly tricked into aligning yourself with Satan and being subject to condemnation. I also don't think that Jesus's salvation power is so weak that it can be overcome by a man-made whatever vaccine energy drink. Um, I just to put it barcode. all Yeah. Barcode. I, I just to Mikhail put it Gorbachev's all birthmark. Yeah. Um, just to put it all in perspective, like your salvation was a, a cosmic event orchestrated by God himself, uh, a God who controls and knows all things. Um, and there's nothing that you can unwittingly stumble into that is going to undo that. So I think, you know, it, it, we tend to roll our eyes a little bit at, at some of the, the insecurities that people have. But, you know, I, I have no doubt that they're real. Um, 
And I just, I just want to have that kind of, I want to encourage you if you're, if you're going through that here, here, here's, that you're, here's, you're in your salvation. Yeah. And, and here's just a simple, this is not Anthony talking. This is in scripture. Um, perfect love casts out fear. So you may not agree with all of our interpretations or, or some of the ideas Matt and I presented, but I just would say if you are um, sort of engaging with ideologies and theologies that are instilling fear, I just want to suggest that they are not coming from the God who is love um, because perfect love casts out fear. Um, so uh, the, the fear mongering about the end and about Jesus second coming and about when God renews all things. Um, that, that's the picture at the end of the revelation actually uh, mm -hmm. is God says he will make all things new and he will wipe away every tear. And um, like, can, can you just imagine the beauty of that picture? Like God himself touching your face and wiping the tears off of your face from the pain. This is in, uh, I think it's Revelation 21. Um, there's this picture of God making all things new and renewing all that we have lost and all that sin is broken and all the pain and all the trial and all the suffering. Um, and, and it's meant to encourage you, believer. Uh, one day God himself will wipe away your tear. That's, a, the, that's, perfect, the, that's the picture of who God is. It's, yeah. You know, the God who fights alongside his people, fights for his people, and in the end, renews his people. Yeah. That's the destiny that we face. It's not destruction at the hand of a wrathful deity. Yeah. Yeah. But uh, so anyway, we've been sidebarring a lot here because this is just a, a loaded topic. And um, but I think we should get to. Uh, at least one of the symbols, <laughs> the popular yeah, so, symbol of revelation, yep. which is the Antichrist, this this legendary beast figure that's marked by the number 666. Which I want to suggest, the so the word Antichrist is not used ever in Revelation, actually. Um, so I don't even know that I think the beast and the Antichrist. Um, Paul, I think, uses that term a couple times. Yeah. I don't know if anyone, I can't remember if it's used it might be used in Jude. I think it's used in Jude, but it's not in Revelation. And so I don't even know that I would say they're meant to even be synonymous or parallel. But um, that's, yeah. Yeah, the Second Thessalonians, Paul uh, mentions it. And when he does, it's not like the Antichrist. It, there's plural. Paul talks about Antichrist, you know, yeah. people who are um, promoting ideas and uh, heresies that are antithetical to Christ. Yeah, but in Revelation 13, it, it talks about the, a, an individual, so it's like a, or at least that's how some have interpreted it. This is one person who is the Antichrist. So, um, what what is kind of your, uh, what is one of the ways that that can be interpreted? That you yeah. Um, so I'm going to share kind of how I I lean, and then Matt's going to debunk what I share. No, it's um, not, I, I'm not. No, I'm just kidding. <laughs> I know. It's, it's kind of just a, a a bit of a rebuttal, and in some of we we Anthony and I don't fully align on this, yeah. um, which is a great thing, I think, because uh, yeah. we're not so, just, we're not just a uh, you know echo chamber. I, I our relationship, I think we have some healthy debates, which is great. Um, yeah. So I'm not we looking apologize. to Yeah, exactly. So yeah, go ahead. Um. So. Uh, the, the number 666, um, Hebrew doesn't have numbers. Um, so Hebrew letters were uh, ascribed numbers. And um, some have suggested, there are some scholars who, who suggest that um, 
the the number 666 if you ascribe certain hebrew letters um sort of uh not exactly because uh, you as you'll say nero caesar is a greek name um but it's it's the hebrew for nero yeah nero caesar if you take the um, the, the greek pronunciation of nero caesar and transliterate into into hebrew characters yeah yeah and so um so for me i tend to lean towards this was uh john's way of of the beast he's talking about uh caesar and i don't think he's talking about one person because i think uh uh i lean towards i think domitian was was likely emperor not even nero caesar so i think it's a way of saying um the emperor cult the the empire the way of empire the way of rome to subjugate their enemies through violence and domination and um, they're, they're uh, declaring that Caesar is Lord. And so I think um, the beast is referencing uh, the Roman Empire and the sort of attack and assault on Christians that was happening. And But I, I think it's sort of reference, for, for me, I kind of see it as uh, symbolic of an archetype, uh, as the way of the world. Jesus told his disciples, um, you know, leaders in the world lord their authority over you, but not so with you. And then Jesus modeled washing their feet. And then Jesus died on the cross. And he said, turn the other cheek and love your enemies and all this stuff. And so I sort of see it as being representative of um, the way of of the way of Rome, the way of empire, um, and, and the beast being Caesar, and, and the worship of this, the worship of empire, the worship of power that is secured through violence. Um, and and so in that way, also, I can see it sort of applying to different ages of, in, in history. But right. I mean, in, a little bit... in that in that mindset, like if you say, yeah, Putin uh, in the yeah. invasion of Russia, he is embodying empire mindset. He is embodying embodying antichrist uh, characteristics. Yeah. Right? Which I think is is totally that like it is antithetical. To Not the to say that he is the antichrist. Nope, that is not what I'm saying. Will, we need to be clear about that. Yeah, but he is embodying the empire mindset that God is so radically opposed to. Yeah, and and he does not want his people to align themselves with the way. And I think it also, um, in the context of that emperor worship and the libelous and and them having to declare Caesar as Lord, um, uh. Or, or face consequences. I think it, it fits in the context of persecution and emperor worship that they were, uh, that was prevalent at the time. So there's sort of, um, I see it as being representative of the empire um, and, and people who are aligned with that way of exerting dominance over others. Right. Uh, it's from Revelation 13 is the, the passage. Uh, I saw another beast come out of the earth. He had two horns like those of a lamb, but he spoke like the voice of a dragon. So this idea of like someone coming in peace, but uh, being deceptively you know, violent. He exercised all the authority of the first beast. He did astounding miracles. He made a great statue. Um, he required everyone, small and great, rich and poor, free and slave, to be given a mark on the right hand or on the forehead. Uh, no one could buy or sell anything without that mark, which is either the name of the beast or representing the number of his name. Uh, but John says wisdom is needed here, which is interesting. Revelation 13, 18. Wisdom is needed here. Let the one with understanding solve the meaning of the number of the beast, for it is the number of a man. Uh, his number is 666. So 
cryptic. It's almost like he's it's almost like he's winking at his audience. Yeah. Um and, and implying be careful and, how you interpret what I just said. Yeah, exactly. And this is probably symbolism they were familiar with. Like John isn't, you know, if he if he was intending uh for that to be a secret code, uh that would be strange because God doesn't work in secret codes. <laughs> um, this would be the first time in the entire Bible. Um, it's a it's a cryptic passage, and it I think your way of interpreting it, it it makes definitely makes sense because the way of empire is authoritarian, it is deceptive, it is uh, power grab, it is violent, it's flashy, um, and those are the things that Jesus was not. <laughs> that was that is antichrist. So. Yeah. So um, how about you, Matt? What, what are some of the lens? And maybe that's a good way for us to say it. These are sort of lenses through which we might interpret it, but we're not trying to suggest that we have like infallible, um, at least I'm not trying to suggest that I have infallible insight. And if you don't interpret it this way, you're, you're wrong. Um, these are just some lenses that I think are more helpful and less fear inducing than um, it could be a vaccine that's injected right. into you. <clears throat> oh. So how, what's the lens you see it through? So the, the idea of 666, um, it, is, uh, it goes back to, uh, like you said, the, this Hebrew numbering system where they, they didn't have numbers. Our, our numbers are from the Arabic, the Arabic system. They're called Arabic numerals. Um, and they didn't have those in Hebrew. They would actually write out the entire number they were trying to get across. Uh, but then it, eventually they just became shorthand and they they started just using individual letters to represent um, numbers. And you could take the name Nero Caesar, um, the kind of Hebrew transliteration of that, because it's a Greek name. Um, and you could, you could fudge the numbers enough to, to make that add up to 666. Um, the problem I have with that is one, that Nero Caesar, Caesar is a Greek name, and there's really no way to just transliterate it into Hebrew. Um, also, John's audience spoke Greek, and many of them probably were not familiar with Hebrew if they weren't Jewish <laughs> uh, before they became Christians. And so that would have been supremely confusing to them. Um, and I think my only, John, my only pushback there is I think John does, I could be wrong. So you'll have to check this, but I think there's some some other symbolism that comes from like the Apocrypha mm-hmm. and some of the intertestamental writings. Um, so, and so he I think does, John does, he does, but he interprets it for them Yeah, he in those it. sections. He says yeah. in Hebrew, this means X, Y, and Z. Oh, he doesn't yeah, do that. Sure. He doesn't do that sure. in this chapter. Yeah. Um, so that's part yeah, of that. That's true. I think John's the intention for revelation is revelation, not, uh, obscurity. <laughs> and so I yeah. think, um, I don't think John would, in, unless, for some reason he was um trying to kind of code it from you know getting getting in the wrong hands prevent it from getting into the wrong hands that's entirely possible but that's kind of the one of the problems i have with that yeah. it's just like the un- people were probably unfamiliar with hebrew um if they weren't culturally jewish which these people in these churches probably weren't but i think the, the one of the, the the biggest problems i think is um you can manipulate hundreds of names, hundreds of ways yeah. to, to arrive at that number. Um, people have done it with Muhammad, uh, who is the, the prophet uh, who began Islam. They've done it with Hitler, of course. But, you know, people like 
Barack Obama. Uh, they have taken his name and, and made it come out to 666. Like you can, you can make pretty much anyone the Antichrist <laughs> if you really want to. Uh, and I just think that um, because I believe wholeheartedly that that revelation is not meant to spread suspicion or conspiracy, it's meant to encourage. Uh, I don't. I don't think that is what John was trying to to get at. Like this, here's the name of the person that you need to be on the lookout for. Uh, his name spells out six six six, because you can do that with anyone. Um, and I just. I don't know if that's uh, a great interpretation, but uh, I think um, a better understanding. Well, first of all, do you have any like pushback on that? Some of my my rebuttals, like. I mean. Um... No, I, I can I can see where, other than kind of what I said that like I think it's possible John used imagery or symbols that were familiar to the Hebrew mind, mm-hmm. um, but it's also um, yeah I also kind of know where you're headed so and I don't yeah. I think that's a, an okay lens to see through too so yeah we'll we'll find it out later yeah and well and to <laughs> add what you're saying like I saw someone say uh, make uh, COVID nineteen letters add up somehow oh, yeah. or something or like someone did something with that and so yeah like people i think you got to be careful with is it called gematria is that how you yeah, say it that's what's good. yeah i think that's what it's called um you have to be careful with that stuff so, uh, so i think is, that's fair yeah there's a really helpful article um by the gospel coalition i should cite this because i'm i get i got a lot of those uh, thoughts from that article it's called why is the number of the beast 666 uh, it's on the the gospelcoalition.org, and uh, I don't um, fully agree with all of their the things they put out. But some of their articles, especially by the you know the independent contributors, are, are super good. Um, and this one's really helpful. Uh, his name is Garrett Kell. I would encourage you to read that. But I think a better understanding, in in my opinion, is that the 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 significance of the number six 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 is. Uh, is actually the number itself. Um, and so if you, if you look throughout the Bible, uh, the number seven is actually used to represent perfection or completeness. So uh, originally it's uh, God finished creation in seven days. That's the first mention. Like that's when God's creation was complete and perfect and good was seven days. Um, Israel's calendar year historical Israel, uh, it was divided into seven year cycles. So every seventh year would mark the end of one cycle and the beginning of another. Um, in John's gospel, there are seven signs that Jesus performs that, uh, that confirm his uh, identity as the Messiah. Uh, Jesus told his followers <laughs> to forgive their enemies, not seven times, uh, but seven times, 70 times. And he wasn't saying, you know, literally, you are required to forgive your enemies 490 times and thus fulfill the law of Christ. He's saying, uh, forgive your enemy seven times and then multiply that by 10 times, and then multiply that number by seven times again uh, to say as many times as you need to <laughs> until your forgiveness is complete. Um, John in, in Revelation, he uses the number seven often too, you know, there's seven seals that he references. So seven uh, throughout scripture 
represents completion, perfection, wholeness. Um, and I think the <laughs> significance of this number 666 um, is it's kind of an unholy trinity, an, an incomplete trinity. Uh, it doesn't represent the name of one specific person. It represents imperfection. It represents yeah. people who fall short of God's wholeness, uh, completeness, perfection, which without Jesus is everybody, right? Um, yeah. So the, the mark of the beast, this 666 identifier, it's not the name of a person. It's the mark of sin on the sinner. Um, who is without salvation in Jesus. So that's kind of where I land. Um, 666 is, it falls short of God's perfection and holiness. And so it's not the name of one person. It's the name of all people who are in sin. Yeah, yeah, that's good. Well, um, this wasn't an, an, an exhaustive like walkthrough of the book of Revelation. And um, partially because I want to be very clear, I'm still a student. I am not ready to teach on this, but I want to recommend a couple books that I've read and one I intend to read. That's okay. Mm-hmm. That might be helpful. There's one that's little. It's like 90, it's not even 100 pages, at least in this copy I have. It's old too, but it's... Um, called A Common Sense Approach to the Book of Revelation by Marie Strong. Uh, you can get it on Amazon for 10 bucks, um, but it's it's really brief, but I think um, it's not going to give you mastery over the book of Revelation, but I think her common sense approach is, um, is responsible <laughs> um, and, uh, and, and helpful. Another book that I read was More Than Conquerors. I quoted this earlier, An Interpretation of the Book of Revelation by William Hendrickson. Um, And uh, this one is much more scholarly, but it's really good. And there's a lot of stuff uh, just that he goes through that I don't have, again, I don't have, I don't feel proficient enough to talk about, but he even just highlights some literary structure things. And there's some like parallelism in the, in the book and um, sort of, almost this way that the book tells the story of the gospel from a spirit, like revealing the spiritual, like there's the, the dragon and the virgin and, and this stuff. And, and um, there's just some literary stuff that uh, is going on in the book too, that add um, beauty to it. Mm-hmm. The book I haven't read, but I'm uh, skimmed some parts of, but intend to read um, is victorious eschatology, a partial preterist view by Harold B. Erbel and Martin Trench. Um, The reason I want to read this and the reason I'm recommending this is I had a pastor friend who is retired. So he is um, uh, further along in years than I. And he, for most of his pastoral career, aligned with what is known as the futurist perspective. The futurist perspective is what is sort of uh, popularly um, proclaimed in some of those Facebook things that you'll come across and some of those people that claim to have prophetic, it's the, it's the, I call it um, left behind theology. <laughs> um, it's the, it's sort of the left behind perspective. And this pastor for most of his ministry career taught and aligned and read things uh, along that perspective. He read this book, Victorious Eschatology, which is the one that defends um, the view that I aligned with. Um, as I mentioned earlier, walks through defending it exegetically. Um, after reading this book and after all those years, he has uh, changed his views. He has shifted and um, now has been pretty actively promoting 
and, and sort of almost blogging, but on his Facebook about uh, other views. And uh, he's, he's read a bunch of other books now. It sort of opened up him to a different spectrum of theology that for mm-hmm. most of his ministry, he had sort of just dismissed. So just, I guess what I'd say is I just encourage you not to dismiss it um, because uh, yeah, that's, that's all I'll say about that. Victorious eschatology. You can get all these books on Amazon. Yeah. And I just want to say both of us are still students of this topic. Like we're still learning and still kind of growing in our uh, knowledge of the subject and our thoughts. And a lot of this um, podcast, a lot of our conversations are kind of us uh, developing and, and thinking out loud almost and considering different things. And so I'm, I'm not at all like beholden to one like I, I'm open to um, changing my views on on any topic, honestly. Uh, yeah, so so am I. Besides um, those that are biblically mandated, you know. Yeah. Uh, I I I'm an I'm open minded and I and I'm a learner and I love different perspectives and so as I research as I learn more about this um, as I encounter different perspectives, obviously I I think I'll I'll be open to you know changing and learning and growing. So yeah, yeah. Um, you know, I think it could be possibly appropriate to close with some of those passages mm-hmm. at the end of Revelation. Yeah, I think I want to say um, what's going on in the world right now. Like we we kind of seeded this discussion in the the situation in Ukraine, and I kind of want to go back to it because kind of you know to tie it up and and bring it back. Um, what what going what is going on in the world right now uh, grieves the heart of God and. Um, whatever theological implications it may or may not have, like our posture as Christians should be one of mourning, not rejoicing in the death of the enemy, uh, but mourning the loss of life and the suffering that is going on. And as Christians, we, (laughs) we are joyful and the Christians that are in Ukraine right now are joyful that we have a God who fights alongside of us, who struggles with us, who even suffers alongside of us. Um, and without that God, without that hope, um, I don't know how we would get through. Um, and I just think that's a, a kind of a powerful reminder. Like the world that we live in is not the way God intended it to be. And these things are going to happen. They are not surprising to God. They shouldn't be surprising to us. Jesus said they would happen. Um, but the hope that we have is secure in the knowledge that Jesus is coming back, that he is still on the throne, that he is still Lord. So I just felt like I wanted to, to bring it back to that. Good. That's good. Well, um, revelation 21, I'm going to read verses one through five. Then I saw, this is John. Then I saw a new heaven and a new earth for the first heaven and the first earth had passed away and there was no longer any sea. Uh, The sea in ancient thought was symbolic of chaos. So I like to read that. There's no longer any chaos. I saw the holy city, the new Jerusalem coming down out of heaven from God, prepared as a bride, beautifully dressed for her husband. And I heard a loud voice from the throne saying, look, God's dwelling place is now among the people and he will dwell with them. They will be his people and God himself will be with them and be their God. He will wipe away every tear from their eyes. There will be no more death or mourning or crying or pain for the old order of things has passed away. He 
who is seated on the throne said, I am making all things. Then he said, write this down for these words are trustworthy and true. Amen. Amen. Come Lord Jesus. Come. Thanks for joining us. Like share, subscribe, uh, and look out for next month's episode and join us again for Theologizing Life.